Mark chapter 1, verse 14 to 28. Now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. As he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat, mending the nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went away to follow him. They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and began to teach. They were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Just then there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. Throwing him into a convulsion, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice, and it came out of him. They were all amazed so that they debated among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Immediately, the news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding districts of Galilee. Father God, thank you for another privilege and opportunity for us to, to confront your word, to dive into it, and to learn more about our precious Savior. Lord, as we look at this particular passage about the ministry of Jesus Christ, and we ultimately submit to his authority, knowing that every worldly authority, whether it be governments or even the demons of the age, all of these things are subservient to you. And Lord, we pray that we trust in your authority over all things. And as we study this text, may we get the glimmer, a better picture of how great your, Savior, your Son is. I hope that we can be faithful in declaring your word and living faithfully to you. Thank you for this time in your Son's precious name. Amen. Well, the concept of authority is something that our culture seems to be very polarized and almost everything in between. Uh, we know that there are a lot of bad authorities in the world, and there are some good authorities some from history and even some modern day, but generally there's a spectrum, but particularly in our, in our modern day, uh, there seems to be a negativity towards it, whether it's somewhere in the secular world where uh, people see the hypocrisy of our leaders and uh, are trying to wonder, are wondering why they behave a certain way, and sadly, this goes even into the context of the church. There are sometimes pastors, especially in the last decade or so, who has failed so horribly that they, it's because they abuse their authority or they abuse their position uh, that ends up tainting 
the idea of submitting to an authority. But we know that all authority is from the Lord, whether they are secular, like as we see in Romans chapter 13, or elders, as we see in 1 Timothy and Ephesians chapter 4. We see these, we understand that as flawed as all of these different elders are, even secular or, or, or even spiritual ones, that all authority is from the Lord. That they, and at its best, give us a little glimmer of the, of the one true authority that is found in our Savior. And when we look at this text, that's what I want to show us, that in the life of our Savior, he is the man that has authority. He isn't like the, the leaders that we see in our day and age. He's something that is extraordinary. He's unique. He is the Son of God. And all authorities fail except Jesus Christ. He is the authority that we ultimately submit to. Whether even in the context of a church in a secular world, we as followers of Jesus Christ must submit ourselves to the authority of Jesus Christ. As we look through this text, these uh, 14 verses or so, I hope to give us a better grasp of how great our Savior is. And in doing so, that we learn to worship him better and be a better follower of Jesus Christ and maybe be humbled by the fact that this is the Savior that we worship. So let's begin by looking at verse 14. Now, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into, the, into Galilee preaching the gospel of God. Now, it's interesting that Mark just says, right after uh, John has been taken into custody. This is at the time of the gospel when this was written. It seems like it was just common knowledge. Uh, this wasn't like the other gospel. It wasn't like Matthew chapter 14 where it explains uh, why John the Baptist was taken away. Uh, this is somehow common knowledge, and, and Mark just kind of skips through all of that. He wants to focus his attention on Jesus Christ. And we know that the reason why John was taken away was because of his faithfulness. He, uh, in his life, was a forerunner of Jesus Christ, as we uh, l learned from two messages ago. And he was telling people to repent. He was calling people out for their sin. And in Matthew chapter 14, we see him confronting sin, in particular sexual sin, and it rubbed people the wrong way. Matthew chapter 14, it reads, At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the news about Jesus and said to his servant, This is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead. And that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. For when Herod and John uh, had John arrested, he bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip. For John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Although Herod wanted to put him to death, he feared the crowd because they regarded John as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of the Herodians danced before them and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Having been pro prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. Although he was grieved, the king commanded to, it to be given because of his oath and because of his dinner guests. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. His disciples came and took away the body and buried it. This is a headless body, by the way. And they went and reported to Jesus. This is just kind of like the reaction of those that 
confronts sin in the culture, that there is going to be animosity. There's going to be people that wants to silence you for telling people and calling them out for their sin. This is what happened to John. He was taken away um, into custody. And when this, all, of this event, all these events happened, it came to them to realize that, okay, this must mean that the job of the forerunner is, is, is done. Now, it's interesting that taken away here shows up in the book of Mark multiple times. The same idea has taken place. And these are all places, uh, these are all, the idea of it is still the same. In Mark chapter 9, verse 31, Jesus said to his disciples, the son of man is to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And, he, and, and when he has been killed, he will rise up three days later. John, I mean, Mark chapter 10, verse 33 it says, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. Chapter 14, verse 10. And Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went off to the, went off to the chief priests in order to betray, them to, uh, betray him to them. They were glad when they heard this and promised to give him money, and he began, to, and he began seeking how to betray and an opportune time. So this idea of being delivered or taken away, this, this phrase is used later in the book of Mark to signify that this taking away of John the Baptist is just, even, a, even the, his death, the way that he was taken away, is going to be a foreshadow of how Jesus himself is going to be delivered over to the Jewish rulers. And this is, in a lot of ways, John is, is treated this way because he is speaking the truth, and Jesus would be treated far worse than John the Baptist. This is something that Jesus warned his followers, that if you believe in me, if you follow me, if you live a holy life, if you call people to repentance, the result is that you are going to be persecuted. And the reason why they do these things, the reason why they want to kill you is because they hate Jesus Christ. Do not be surprised if the world hates you or puts you to death for your faith. Being a Christian is going to be very uncomfortable. And as, time, as our, our society becomes more and more anti-God and secular, we will see this come about. And we even know that in different parts of the world, this is just a normal part of Christian life. You know, most Christians all over the world do not have a safe place to meet in like a church like this. Most Christians are hiding in homes and meeting and talking in code to find places so they can fellowship and pray with one another. These are all part of God's divine sovereign plan that would build up the, and that even if the all the persecution comes the church will not be snuffed out but it is going to be difficult we see here just a little foretaste john is taken away into custody and jesus came to cal preaching the gospel of god he's telling people he's calling people back uh, to, to, to salvation and it's interesting that in the beginning of mark mark chapter 1 verse 1 says the beginning of the gospel of jesus christ the Son of God. So there's this preaching that the gospel of God and the gospel of Jesus are one and the same. Jesus begins his ministry here in this, in this account by preaching. Preaching is an important element of salvation. If you look at every major movement in church history, the reason why people change and why there's revivals, why there's a change in the culture, it's off, is always because of the powerful preaching of Jesus Christ. Whenever people preach God's word and, and, and people believe and trust into the preaching of, of Scripture, their lives get transformed. And when individuals get transformed, the entire culture will change. 
The only reason why in our day and age cult, uh, preaching isn't as effective is because preaching is often used as a way to preach a different and false gospel. But people that are preaching the true gospel, yes, they're going to have, when they change, when, when the Holy Spirit changes a person, regenerates them, it's, a, it's an amazing thing. And Jesus here is preaching God's word. He's preaching mainly his word. The gospel of Jesus Christ and the gospel of God are one and the same. Verse 15, and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. That's fascinating is that the time is fulfilled. The implication is that John being put to death, ending the time of really the, the, the ministry of John the Baptist, triggered the beginning of the ministry of Jesus Christ. So the times fulfilled as part of God's divine plan. Even the worst events in life, we must always see that these are all part of God's divine plan. God places people and circumstances in place to also fulfill his divine plan. And we may not know what these things are, in the, but, we will, but as long as we're faithful to the Lord, as long as we're walking closely with the Lord, we're doing the thing that God expects us to do. John's death was part of God's divine timing, and no gospel ministry is outside of God's time, God's timetable. We're familiar with Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, that what man meant for evil, God meant it for good. No plan of man is outside of God's sovereign hand. It must be counted for us as believers as worthy, especially during a time where it seems like it's hard to be a Christian. It's fascinating when you ever talk to older Christians, particularly those that think that this their generation is the last generation. You, you realize that every and they feel bad for like our generation. Oh, you guys are gonna have it so rough. Like we shouldn't think in those terms. We should see like this is where God wants us to be. This is where God wants us to represent Him and to call people to repentance. And we must see that as an honor, even if it means if it invites persecution and death in our parts, we must see it as a privilege and as a joy to be able to represent him in this day and age. He says here, Jesus says, the times will and the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is, is a theme that's throughout the entire scripture from all the way to the Old Testament where God promised a physical land until the end of Revelation where we see this land being finally fulfilled. But here, this little kind of in-between part, Jesus is saying that the kingdom of God is a hand, meaning that it's in relation to who he is. If you want to enter into this kingdom, if you need to have a right relationship with him, he's calling people to repent and believe in the gospel. This word repent is something that we're all familiar with. It's this 180, it's this changing of course, it's turning away. But notice that Jesus said repent and believe in the gospel. What is very horrifying about this phrase here is that people can actually repent and not believe. That's why Jesus put these two together. You have to repent and believe. In our day and age, there's, it's, it's fascinating how when Christians used to hold a certain moral ethic, the world used to think that we're a bunch of prudes. But now they look at how messed up their lives are, how families are broken, how, how watching pornography is messing up the minds of young men, and how... A disorderly, how if, if a marriage is broken, then the family is destroyed and the kids are going to be affected. How the things that God and the scripture have said that these things are good, the world has said bad. Now they're thinking, hey, these things are actually good. But they try to have those things without Christ. 
You know, in a sense, what they're doing is repentance. They're turning from one way, one way of living to another. But what they lack is that they are not believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You too, as Christians, can have this. You can actually repent and not believe in Jesus Christ. Because there is such a thing as a false repentance. There is a, such a thing as a guilt of sin that doesn't lead to salvation. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 Verse 10, for the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. The world can come up with different ways and why you should not live a certain way that happens to align with Scripture. But if they do it without Jesus Christ, that's only a temporal fix. It doesn't alleviate the fact that they are still, uh, they still need to be reconciled with God. And this is why Jesus calls them to repent and believe in the gospel. Now, I wonder if that's some of you here today. You may have on the surface accountability groups. You may be in a small group. You may have a discipler. You may have all of these people in your life that can, can even attest to the fact that you on the surface seem like you're growing in Christ-likeness. But in your heart, you care more about the acceptance of other Christians than being made right with the Lord. And if that is you, you need to repent and believe of your own self-righteousness and of your own delusion of what salvation is. Because repentance is according to God's word, and you need to believe in the fact that Jesus Christ died for every single one of your sins. And then when you love Jesus Christ, that's why you will grow in your, in your affections for him, and your, the way that you live your life will be more and more like Jesus Christ. But you need to repent and believe in the gospel, not in just some sort some sort of superficial way so that people in the church will not be bothering you or nagging you about your own sin. You need to genuinely repent and have a genuine faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 16, as he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. So Jesus went to this place, Sea of Galilee, I think, I don't know if Bill has been there before, but I had to Google someplace, and it's a very beautiful area. It's, there's just trees all around. It's all green, and um, Josephus has said that. He was a church historian from all the way back. When he was describing the Sea of Galilee, there would be hundreds of boats there, hundreds of people fishing there. And this is a place where, you know, the, where it's like a port, lots of ports. A lot of people go there to work. And Jesus, uh, he saw Simon and Andrew. And I think it's funny here that he, you know, Simon's Peter and then Andrew. And he describes Andrew as the brother of Simon. And because, you know, Peter is really the one that gave uh, the gospel to Mark to write this. And he identifies Andrew as his own brother. It's like he, he's just describing it like, the only good thing about this guy is he's related to me. Uh, I kind of laughed when I said that. It may not be to you, but he uh, saw Jesus. Uh, Jesus saw Simon, Peter, and he saw Andrew, and they were casting a net in the sea. It means that they were just hardworking. Uh, they were working. They were just doing the thing. They were fishermen, and and I think it's intentional that uh, God chose these particular guys. Um, and there's also two other fishermen as well, because when you're a fisherman, it requires you to have courage. You know, we might think, oh, why is it so hard to wear a life vest and go in the water? It's not a problem. You can swim back. It's a lake of Galilee. It's not that bad. But, but that wasn't there back then. You're, sometimes storms can come, and, and uh, it just seems to come out of nowhere. And, you know, they didn't have compasses, and they just had to navigate everything um, based on instinct and skill. So it took courage. Uh, fishermen have to work as a team. You see, like, Simon and Andrew were working together. Uh, there has to be patience involved. 
Um, you know, fishing is not something, it's not like how we think about fishing. You go to a supermarket. You, there are a lot of fishermen here in our, in our church. You just ask them. It's just, it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of patience. It takes a lot of energy. When you fish, it takes a lot of energy because um, I've n- clearly I have never fished before except for the little toy game. But even those little toy games can be very difficult. But it takes a lot of energy because you have to pull these things out. And back then when they fished, it wasn't like, you know, I guess they could have thrown spears, but how they did it in this particular context was they had these huge nets that would, they would just cast into the sea, and at the end of it, there would be like these weights. They look like cones, and they'll just kind of like surround the air, and they'll jump into the water, and then they'll, tie, they'll, they'll reach for these cones, tie it together, and then they'll pull it, they'll swim back out and pull it out. So it takes a lot of energy to do these things. It takes a lot of endurance and stamina. It even takes faith because they need to decide, okay, I'm going to go here and say everything's calculated. We don't know exactly what's going to be out there, but we're going to go anyway. It also takes bravery. Now, all of these attributes of a fisherman is actually what Christ needed for them to do his ministry. Well, there's courage, teamwork, patience, energy, stamina, faith, and bravery. These are all things that made them successful fishermen, and Jesus saw them, and he knew that he was going to use these attributes for him to build the church. Jesus is calling to, for these people to join him in ministry. And what is fascinating is that this is actually not the first time they've met. In John chapter 1, verse 35, during the baptismal scene, they've actually seen Jesus before. So it wasn't like Jesus was like, hey, you, I don't know who you are. Come over here. And they're like, okay. Like they've, they've met before in a previous context. Um, yet, uh, you know, they, they're called uh, to, to, by the Lord here at this time to serve him. Yet God uses these characteristics, these faithful people, to do great things, not just as part of the work, but more importantly, for his kingdom. Faithful Christians will grow in their faith, which makes them mature, and the Lord will give them more responsibility. An example, I think, in my personal life, and even for all of you guys, is your own elders. I'm, I, all the lay elders in our church I mean, they make me feel lazy in, in, in comparison, except for maybe the retired guys. But even the retired elders, they work a lot. I'm just blown away by how hard they work and how faithful they are at their secular jobs and how they have such a good reputation because of their hard work. And, it's, and that it gets transferred over into their ministry, that characteristic of, of diligence and, and discipline. They work hard in their secular jobs. They work hard for the kingdom of God. And the Lord rewards that kind of faithful attitude. And perhaps that's some of you. Some of you may have an aspiration to be deacons and elders and missionaries. But if you want to do those things well, you have to be faithful in the task that God has given you. Some of you are going to do great things, whether you're in college right now or just working. You're going to do great things. But the reason why you do great things is because the Lord's working in your heart, yes, in your life. But it's because you're just disciplined. You're faithful with what the Lord has given you. And some of you, I I know, are struggling in this area. And I just encourage you to be faithful. That the Lord can use fishermen to build his kingdom. He can use every single one of us. He can use all of us for his glory. And you just have to be faithful with the task that God has given you. Some of you, sadly, are going to crash and burn because your life is just filled with compromises. You're lazy at work. You're lazy in your personal life. You're lazy in ministry. And there's no, there's no surprise to other people than why you're not growing in maturity, why you're not uh, rising to the ranks of an elder. I mean, that's why Paul was confronting um, I guess Hebrews, or it's just in the book of Hebrews, 
the writer was just confused on why some of these people, they should be leaders at this point, but they're still drinking milk. They should be the one eating meat. They should have been mature by now, but for whatever reason, usually probably some sort of sin, that they're stunted in their growth. And I don't want that for any single one of you. Because the reality is joint heirs, the people here, will eventually will be the leaders of this church. Uh, you guys are eventually going to, the Lord's working in all of your lives now, and I hope that you guys will all be used mightily in this church for his kingdom. But you need to pattern your life out of, out of faithfulness, because unfaithfulness needs to ruins at worst, and at minimum it leads to a life of spiritual stagnation and stunted growth. And I do, I, I do hope that all of you will aspire to godly maturity and do amazing things for the Lord. Verse 17, Jesus said to them, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Now, he tells them, he commands them to follow him. This is the, the word follow me, this phrase here was the same thing that Jesus used when he spoke to Lazarus. When Lazarus was in the tomb, he said, come out. That's the same word here. Uh, he tells the Lazarus to come out of the grave. That's the same word he uses for these fishermen here. And he said, I will, make you be, I will make you become fishers of men. And I didn't really think much about this until I studied this text. But this is a really prophetic message here. Jesus said that he will make them into these great fishers of men. God sees their potential. He sees their strength, but he also knows their weaknesses. He sees both of these things. And he knows that one, of, one day down the line, they will become fishers of men. All of these guys at one point have left Jesus. He sees, he knows that. He's aware of their shortcomings. He knows their strength. He knows both of these things. But yet he saw their potential. And, and he saw what they were able to do. And he was willing to invest in them. And this is really something that, as a pastor, I'll admit that is something that's hard for me sometimes. Some of, sometimes I'll meet someone. I'll think they have a lot of potential. And others, just because of the way that they are and their demeanor, their immaturity, I think I don't always often think the best of them. This is something that I need to work on thinking and assuming and, and just really assuming the best of them, believing and hoping and seeing that, that the Lord is going to work in their life. And not just the people that are skilled and, and are, you know, have a, a good personality, but even those that are slower or not as interesting, the Lord can work in them and make them one day to be amazing people for his kingdom. I remember the last few weeks when I was at my old church, um, I was just, I saw this guy from my old high school. He was a grade below, a few grades below me, I think. And I remember seeing him, and I was like, oh, what are you doing here? Because um, I remember this kid. He was a weird kid. He was, like, I mean, weird, like really weird. But then when I saw him, it was almost like I felt like it was a demoniac, like left his body or something, because he was just so mature. He was really gracious. He loved the Lord. He said, like, I'm here because I want to I want to be in seminary. I want to be a pastor. And I was and I was just moved by that. I was just so thankful to the Lord and how the Lord was just able to preserve him all these years. And this is just the grace that our our our, our Lord has with his people. He sees the potential, he knows what they will be, and he knows that he'll make them into these amazing fishers of men. First Corinthians tells us to hope that love hopes all things and believes all things. And Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, reminds us that he who begin a good work will finish it, will complete it. That's something that we as Christians, I think we fail at. Sometimes in our small groups or in our discipleship group or even the context of this church, we just, 
we get, we get annoyed by certain people, and there's other people that we would rather invest in. But that's an that's attitude of favoritism. We look at one, and we want to spend more time with these people because we believe they have more potential, but these other people are not. But then what I find as time progresses is that this is a sinful attitude. This is a wrong way to think about people. Our Savior looked at us. There was nothing good and worthy about us, yet he saved us and has enabled us to do things, amazing things for his kingdom. That's what we need to have for other people as well, that graciousness, that hopefulness, and knowing that the Lord is going to work in them. We just need to pray for them and continue ministering, coming alongside them and caring for them. As people faithfully follow Jesus, God will continue to make them to their fullest potential in ministry. Jesus trained imperfect people in our ministry should be the same, that we are going to be investing in people that some will thrive and others may just take a longer time to get to that point. Some may not grow where we would like them to be, but that's where the God wants them to be. And we need to be patient and work with those that are not, that in our eyes we believe are not worthy. Verse 18, immediately they left their nets and followed him. And this is cool because the word follow him in here, just use the word follow him, but in, in the Greek is this idea of walking on the same road together. They're traveling together is the idea here. They walk together. They were willing to leave their professional career behind and go and win people for Jesus Christ. They followed Jesus because they understood that Jesus was more important than anything else. Now, you got to ask yourself the same question. We all call ourselves Christians, but are we truly following him? Are we willing to give up everything to be faithful servants of Jesus Christ? Verse 19, going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat mending their nets. I thought it was funny. He was like, the word mending nets is like fixing the holes in the net. And I'm like, Isn't, doesn't nets have holes? It's kind of like, it's like a holy thing. There's a lot of holes on it. But I guess maybe in between the nets here, they were trying to fix it. And Jesus summons them as well. He calls them and he tells them to, to follow him. And it's funny because verse 20 said that they left their father Zebedee in the boat. It's like, hey, hey, where are you guys going, guys? And he left. They left him in the boat. But he wasn't alone. He had this, it said here, verse 20, with his hired servant. And they went away and followed him. These four guys are really the first four uh, that Jesus, you know, that is kind of like his close circle. Um, but each and every single one of them will do amazing things. And we know this because of Scripture. In the book of Acts, Andrew brings other people to the apostle. That means that he was an evangelist. He was uh, the kind of evangelist that would just, just invite people to church. He's not the one that, it's not like Paul and Peter that's out screaming and debating against Pharisees and everyone else. He's just working faithfully. He says, hey, do you want to come to Bible study with me? That's the kind of evangelist that John is. When we look at someone like Peter, we know who he is. He was the one that said that, you know, was very bold in the beginning, that he leaves Jesus, and then he remorses over it, then he repents. And then Jesus asks him, do you love me? Then he repents, and he ends up being the Christian that will be, that was, that's murdered. Uh, he was martyred for the faith. And historians have said that he watched his wife get crucified upside down, and during that time he was just pleading with his wife to hold on to the faith. And eventually he himself would be crucified upside down as well because he believed being crucified right side up is too unworthy for him. This prideful Peter becomes this amazing martyr. James was the, really the first martyr. He was the one, he was known James the Righteous. He went against the religious leaders. They threw him down a cliff and threw rocks on top of him. 
because he was calling the Jewish people to go and repent. And John, this historian has tells us that tells us that John was boiled in hot oil twice, and he survived both of them. And afterwards, he was exiled in Patmos, where he wrote the book of Revelation. Each and every single one of these people were in the surface. They were in the beginning were just fishers of men, but the Lord used them mightily, and it started here. They followed him. They walked on that narrow path with Jesus. Not only did they left their careers, but in verse 20, you know, John and James left their family as well. They were willing to leave everything behind for the glory of God so to go and win people to, to Jesus Christ. Now, admittedly, that is going to be a struggle for some of you. Some of you, you, would, you in your own heart of hearts, you'll say, well, outwardly, you'll say things like, of course I'll do everything for Jesus. But in your heart of hearts, it is a struggle. And if you were to be perfectly honest, that's, that's normal. You're going to wrestle between your careers. You're going to wrestle between your, your academics. You're going to wrestle between your family. Can I really love the Lord more than these things? It doesn't say these things are bad, but you, what is your greatest affection? Because, what, because whatever your greatest affection is, that's what you're going to spend your most time. That's the thing that you're going to love the most. That's what is the thing that's going to, that you're going to cherish. And that's the thing, and that's the area that you're going to, whether you're going to honor the Lord or not, it just depends on what you love the most. The only way people will ever believe that you are a true follower of Jesus Christ is if they notice that in your life. When they look at you, they say, yeah, this guy is sold out for Jesus Christ. He may be a, a worker, he may be a student, he may be a family man, but the thing that will define him the most is his love for Jesus Christ, the fact that he follows Jesus. Now, sadly, some of us are not known that way. We're just known by our professions. We're just known in association, oh, you're so-and-so's friend or you're so, you're, you go to this church, or you're, that's all. You know, there isn't anything else about you that they can discern that say, like, this guy is a genuine follower of Jesus Christ. Sometimes people are not drawn to Jesus because they look at your life and they, you're not following Jesus. Why should they follow Jesus? If you want to be used by God in an exceptional way, you need to have an exceptional devotion to the Lord. It is when you are doing that, that's when the Lord will use these ordinary people like you and I to do extraordinary things. It all begins with this love and devotion as we follow Jesus Christ. It's implied here in verse 20 when the Zebedee was left on his boat with these hired servants that Zebedee, you know, John and James were wealthy people too. That they're willing to leave those things behind to win people to Christ. Verse 21, they went to Capernaum. Immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and began to teach. Verse 22, they were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Jesus went in, he preached, and everyone was shocked. This word amazes. I think the, if I was to translate the Raymond Standard Version, it would be like, shocked to the core they just had they were just they did not they were just dumbfounded at what they were hearing because jesus was speaking to them with authority his his teaching he his teaching is from scripture and scripture is breathed out by god so he's really the source of that and that's what this word authority means the word authority if you i mean in English, you just cut out the last few words, letters as the word author. And that's actually the idea here. The person that has authority, he's the, the source. Jesus is speaking as if he is the source of knowledge. He's the source of truth. 
And we know that in Scripture that that is the case. John chapter 1, verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John chapter 14, verse 6. This is a familiar, familiar passage to all of us. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one could come to the Father but through me. The way that Jesus spoke, it was something just, something different about him. He wasn't like the scribes. The scribes were individuals that, they were basically, they're like parrots. They just kind of copy the person from before. They would copy the, the earthly wisdom from the Jewish rabbis. They would, they, they would quote things from them. They would even use legal things. Like, oh, the back in this one time in the past, the Jewish uh, resolved this conflict by this. And they would take those those rulings and see those things as authoritative. They'll see those wisdoms that the Jewish people come up with as authoritative. They taught traditions because they thought the traditions itself had authority. These scribes, they spoke from authority, but Jesus spoke with authority. There's this huge contrast between the two. The scribes spoke with authority because they were quoting all of these great Jewish rabbis in the past, but Jesus spoke with authority. Now, I, if you look at my office, there are a whole bunch of study Bibles. I love study Bibles because I find them to be really helpful in terms of breaking down text. But there are times in some of the study Bibles that I have that I don't necessarily agree with. And that's okay because those bottom portions of study Bibles are not inspired texts. In fact, there is a cult called Christian Students. Some of you college students might have heard of them. Uh, they, their whole, I guess, group, cult group was created because one, their founder had a Bible that he just kind of made his own devotional and application and illustrations about the text, and then the cult followers ended up just kind of like canonizing all of that and saying that the bottom and the top part are both inspired. Study Bibles are, not, are helpful, but they're not inspired. And if you love those little bottom portion and think that that's the authoritative text, you're no different from the scribes here. Jesus taught people from, with authority, and they were amazed because they knew that the source of truth was from him. It was nothing that they've ever heard before. And this isn't about style, but it is completely about substance. Jesus taught the scriptures while all the Jews were just following the wisdoms and saying of other men. Jesus spoke with authority because, he, he, because he's a, he has authority over all things. All truth stems from him. The scribes and the Pharisees derived their authority from one another and their predecessors. But Jesus spoke all truth and power because every truth came from him. It originated from him. These scribes, they were, focused, they were focused on concepts and wisdom. And oftentimes, these, they would use these things to make it a burden for other people. They didn't use the Old Testament. They would use the application portions of those Old Testament texts and say, these things are authoritative. Jesus, in contrast, spoke from Scripture and explained it. He even clarified some of the things that was misunderstood. That's why in most of Jesus' ministry, they said they, the scribes would quote from Scripture, and Jesus would respond with Scripture and say, no, you're, you're, you don't understand the text originally, how it's supposed to be written, how God intended it. These scribes, they kept all these oral traditions, and those traditions just kept growing and growing. 
and they became a burden to those that were under their care. These were false shepherds. But when the true shepherd came, he spoke with authority. A lot of what Jesus did was to course correct them. And Jesus spoke with authority and it startled everyone because it's the way that he talked, the way they explained things, does not seem like the scribes. The people at that time, under the Jewish religion, leaders and their teaching were bounded by these Jewish quotes, wisdoms, and sayings. Now we need to understand that that can be our temptation as well. We might be drawn to a certain pastor. We might be drawn to a certain individual and the way that they explain scripture and the way that they apply scripture into their own lives and then we think that's it. We need to follow everything that they're doing because it seems like they're authoritative. The, the way that they speak, it seems very authoritative. They can be very charismatic. But we all know that true authority does not derive in any individual, but rather it derives from the scriptures who is, where, you know, scriptures from the Lord. Not even preachers and teachers of God's word are truly authoritative. When I preach, when all the elders and all the pastors here preach, it's just a derived authority. We're just speaking from scripture. Everything else, it doesn't matter. Everything else that we say could just be categorized as opinion. But when we're explaining scripture, that's where it matters. Not everything that a preacher is going to say is perfect, but scripture itself is perfect. Only God's word that is inspired and breathed out by God can truly direct the hearts and minds of followers of Jesus Christ. And Christian, you must be very careful about worldly sayings, opinions, and ideas, because some of these ideas may sound good to you. It may even sound biblical at times, but you cannot let an individual and their opinions be the, the dictator of your life. Because as Christians, we're followers of Christ, not of Paul, not of Apollos, not of every, you know, those individuals, or you can just list any famous preacher. Our authority must, we must be submissive to Jesus Christ, who is the one that has full authority. It is because of that. He's He's speaking, he's, he's speaking with authority. People are shocked, and as he's teaching and, and really convicting individuals, in verse 20, just then, there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, what business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So he's teaching, and this, this person that is demonically inspired has entered into the this man and then that person entered the temple. Now, it's, it's debated on why, on, on what this means in terms of, because sometimes when we think of demoniacs, there are those that are supernatural in strength. Uh, they're like gash, they're, you know, there's one that are like cutting themselves and then crying throughout the night, have unique strength. But it seems like this one here in particular, it's an unclean spirit. And the idea here is that he, this guy is morally bankrupt. He is demonically possessed in terms of his moral convictions. He goes in there, and that his ideas and his way of life and his thinking, they're perverted. They're twisted. He comes in there, and he sees Jesus teaching, and he, I think the demon here is shocked. He's like, what is going on? How do you, what, what are you doing here? Because he wasn't expecting this. Jesus might have expected him, but the, this demon was, was confused at what he was looking at. And it said that in verse 23 that he cried out. This is the shriek of fear. It's this terrible loud noise. And the demon is frustrated by the fact that Jesus is there. And this demon is standing before his creator, and he is completely horrified. 
And again, this demon is not irrational. I think sometimes we think of demons as only those supernatural and like, you know, they could be really strong and make weird noises like this demon here. But then not all demons are like that because demons understand how to trick people. They're, they can, it's said in First Corinthians that they can be angels of light. They can seem that way. It seems like here, there's this, there, even in his demonic state, there is some rationality to what he's saying. Because all the stuff that he's saying right now is true. Right? Jesus is from Nazareth. Uh, he, Jesus is going to destroy them. And he is the Holy One of God. All the things that he's saying is absolutely true. And I think there is a sense of, this, this, although this demon, he can acknowledge that God is holy, that does not mean that demons themselves will be purified just because of their knowledge. Knowledge of God does not make you holy. That can be the same as with, of us as well. Any one of us can acknowledge any attribute of God. When we study God's word, we can affirm, like, oh yeah, God is omniscient, God is omnipotent. We can affirm all of those attributes of the Lord. But that doesn't mean that you're assimilated to what Scripture has to say about what you need to be. You can say that God is holy and not live a holy life. Christians, you must be very careful in thinking that your knowledge is all that you need to know about the Lord, and that's what the Christian life is about. No, your knowledge of God must transform you. It must make you holy. It should change you because knowledge doesn't cut it. In fact, Scripture tells us that knowledge just puffs up sometimes. Knowledge should humble you. It should make you more like Jesus Christ. James chapter 2 says that demons, they are aware of Jesus, and they tremble, just like the one here. He's horrified at the sight of Jesus Christ because he knows who he is. He knows everything there is to know about him, but he's still an unclean spirit. Your attitude towards God must be that of reverence. Because even this demon here, he doesn't have an opportunity to repent. Because even though he knows all his knowledge about the Lord, but you do. You have an opportunity to turn from your sins. You don't have to live in sin because, yes, you can acknowledge that God is from Nazareth. He's the Holy One. But if that doesn't change you, then having this knowledge is completely useless. You need to have a reverential attitude, and not just in terms of the knowledge of him, but also in your own life. In verse 25, Jesus rebukes him, saying, be quiet and come out of him. And it's very interesting that he tells him that. Do you ever wonder why Jesus says, hey, demon, stop talking, be quiet, come out? Why does Jesus do this? Why doesn't Jesus just affirm what the devil or this demon here is saying? Because everything that the demon is saying is true. Why is he denying this? I think there's two reasons. One is because I, don't think, I think Jesus does not want other people to think that the authority that he has is from the devil. But the reason why he can do all of these things is not because the devil allows him or gives him the ability to do so. Because at this time, there are a lot of people that saw Jesus and they made the accusation. They accused him. The reason why he can cast out demons is because he's of the devil, that he's empowered by Beelzebub. This is what the Pharisees were thinking, and Jesus did not want to give them any kind of affirmation or any even hints of that. He wanted to cast out every single doubt that the authority that he has to cast out these demons is not from the demons itself, but is by God alone. And second, I think that the reason why he did that is because people can worship God, Christ for the wrong reasons. The first is because he doesn't want people, he doesn't want people to think that his powers are from the devil. But second, I think he just doesn't want people to go to him for the wrong reasons. Because later on in Mark chapter 1, verse 44, um, another person gets clean. He says, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priests and offer for your, 
your cleansing, what Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Mark chapter 3, verse 12, and he earnestly warned them not to tell who he was. Mark chapter 5, verse 43, he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this, and he said that something should be given uh, her to eat. So there are all of these supernatural events that the Lord is doing in the book of Mark, and he's telling them, don't tell them about who, what, what you saw. In verse, Mark chapter 7, verse 37, he gave them orders not to tell anyone, but the more he ordered them, the more widely they continued to proclaim it. They were utterly astonished, saying, he has done all things well. He makes even the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. Mark chapter 8, verse 26, and he sent them home, saying, do not even enter uh, the village. It's in terms of uh, people confessing uh, Jesus doing all of these miracles. And, in, and later on, chapter 8, verse 30, and he warned them to, not, to tell no one about him. Why did he do all this? Because he did not want people to only come to Jesus so that their superficial, uh, their temporal life could get fixed. You know, a lot of people go to these charismatic preachers for that reason. They want to have their physical, um, you know, pains and everything to be healed. And those things are not inherently wrong, but that's not the reason why Jesus came. Jesus did all these miracles to affirm his authority and the fact that he is the son of God and that you need to repent and believe in him. His main priority is not to fix your worldly problems. He wants people to know him, to love him, and to adore him, to turn away from sin, not so that their, their physical being can be better. I think that's why he's telling the demons to quiet and get out of him. And the result of this, he's again speaking with authority here, verse 26, throwing into convulsion, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice, and it came out of him. This cried out is the same idea. It's this, it's this very high-pitched kind of wailing type cry. And it seems like the devil wanted to resist, but even he had to submit to the word of God. And the result that he left this person's body. You know, like the exorcism that we hear about on TV, which uh, usually requires some sort of special chant or ritual, Jesus, Jesus just spoke. He just spoke, and that settled this. He didn't have to wrestle with the demons. He just spoke, and the demons had to submit to him. Verse 27, they were all amazed. So they debated among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. They were just struggling. What is going on? What is what is this matter? That's actually what this phrase is. What is this? Is they're just trying? They're just they're just so mind blown about what's going on. They're, what is this? And this is a new teaching. Then this word "new" is not like new, like doctrine. Not necessarily. It's this idea of a new, something that's just completely separate, something that's like brand new, something that they're not used to. The same authority that they saw in Jesus' teaching is, is in terms of rendering this demon useless. These people do not fully understand what's going on, and they cannot dodge the reality of what they have just witnessed. They have just witnessed Jesus taking this demon out of this man. And this is a new qualitatively new teaching that is with authority that they have never experienced before, they realize that something special is going on. But they couldn't quite put their finger on it. And I think some of you, whenever you hear a sermon 
especially those that have some of you that may be non-Christians, there's something attractive about Jesus, something that's interesting about him, but you don't quite exactly know what it is. I think when we talk to our non-Christian friends, they, they, they're intrigued by him, but they don't know what it is. What is it about them that's drawn to him? I do think even in those moments, the Holy Spirit's trying to work in them to, to, to guide them to the fact that Jesus Christ is not just a regular man, but he is the fully, fully man, fully God. He is the God-man. He came into the world to die for their sins. And these people were shocked. These people were shocked that Jesus has so much authority over the things of the world. And the result of that is immediately the news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. Jesus is... Uh, uh, his fame spread, and as we continue walking through the book, the Gospels, we realize that it just spreads and spreads, and then we get to the book of Acts, we see it just keeps spreading and spreading, and goes all the way down history to the fact that we here today are recipients of this Gospel. We must praise the Lord for the fact that when Jesus said that his word will be preserved and not one jot of a tittle will, be, will go unfulfilled, that the fact that we have the church here today proves that, his, that he truly has authority. When he speaks, it's not just the events that's going on that changes, but it actually has a ripple effect through all of history. We get to experience uh, God's authority over all things, over history. No matter how many times and how many places and, how many, and throughout history when people want to try to thwart the work of Jesus Christ, his work always prevails. His word prevails. His authority in the life of us and other people, it should cause us to worship him more. Although all, when we look at all earthly authorities, they fail us all the time. But we understand that one day when Jesus returns, that we're going to bow to this uh, perfect sovereign. It's really whenever we see fa people fail, whether it is ministry or in the secular world, it should make us look to these passages and think, I can't wait until Jesus is in the full control of everything again. Right? And when he's in control of the world, when he reigns on this earth, when he is in complete authority, that's going to be true paradise. Until then, may we continue to be faithful. Be faithful to him. May we submit to the authority of God's word, not just the ones that are red font, like some of the weird Christians that only listen to the red letters in the Bible, but every single word, from the old to the new, because we know that all scripture is inspired by the Lord, and it's for our good and for edification to grow us, to mature us. And that's because we believe in the authority of God. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Lord, we know that we struggle in our own sinful flesh with submitting to you. We know that in our own hearts we have moments where we want to have control and believe that our ideas and concepts are more important or have higher authority over your word. May you convict us and cause us to be humble so that we can be transformed by your word. May we humbly submit to the living word that can shape us as like a two-edged sword that's designed to chip away at our sin and cause us to be more like you. Convict us, Lord, and mold us to be faithful believers like the apostles before that eventually became fishers of men that you would just continue working our lives. We want to be faithful. We want to be winning people to the Lord. We want to use our lives. We want to be willing to put off everything and deny everything and let everything go for your kingdom, Lord. May we be faithful evangelists. 
And may we trust in your word at all times. Thank you for the time that we have in your son's precious name. Amen.